Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono, how are you? I'm great. I am fantastic. We are uh, so excited on this episode, which I should point out is uh, episode 217, which is chapter 17 of the Bullet Catch. Better you point that out than I, because I'm not tracking these things. No, that's my job. That's yeah. what I do, and I do it well. Uh, <laughs> I, I will just say, you know, having just come off of our two uh, episode arc, if uh, two episodes, in fact, would be considered an arc with Nicholas Meyer. Great feedback on that. People really seem to enjoy uh, listening to him, uh, as did we. Some of that feedback is probably from me. I've uh, I, I really enjoyed those episodes and enjoyed talking with him like you would not believe. Yeah. Talk about checking the boxes for Mr. Cunningham. Uh, Nicholas we, Meyer did all of that. We did that. But now we're back to... Um, to our mandate, which is to uh, talk about building a better magician, which is what we're doing in all of uh, season two, which is racing past us. We don't have that many episodes left. We do have a couple surprises for the end of the season and then more surprises uh, in store for season three, but we'll get to that later. But anyway, yeah. we're talking about building a better magician and our guest today has been doing that for years and years. Yeah, absolutely. He has right here in our home, the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Oh, uh, I thought you were like right, right here in my house. It's like I, I haven't seen him around well, here. He, well, he has been here in my house uh, oh. teaching me magic. <laughs> Tyler Erickson is who we're talking about. He has personally taught me. He's mentored or consulted with a huge number of magicians here in the Twin Cities. And because of this thing we call the Internet all around the world now. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I've talked in the past about how I discovered him on Cosmo's Real Magic DVD set, which uh, used to come out on a monthly basis and which was a big help for me in learning about magic and magicians because every issue of that DVD had just a plethora, yes, a plethora <laughs> of different magicians and different styles and, and different conversations and different stuff. So, And Tyler would just pop up from time to time uh, against, I believe, a black background. And he would spend like uh, three minutes saying, hey, if you're going to do this, you should do it like this and not like this. Do you see the difference here yep that's the difference i'm tyler erickson for stronger magic and he'd be gone it's like the, like the fonzie showing up every once in a while doing something cool and then he's gone you don't uh but don't bring up fonzie to a cunningham i think that's uh oh sorry that's that's, that's bad form right there we had to, believe it or not my father's name was now that he's gone richard and my my brother's name is uh richard jr so during the height of the happy days craze, uh, we had to get an unlisted phone number because every third phone call was, is Fonzie there? <laughs> I don't want to uh, tip our hand on this, but we are going to go into that uh, with someone sort of connected with that uh, in a few episodes. That's not our job here today. Our job here today is to talk about Tyler Erickson and uh, the wonderfulness that is him and the the sheer amount of information that he can impart uh, in a short amount of time. You're going to find out when yeah. we chat with him. Yeah, and I like I say, I've known Tyler for years. Um, we met at uh, one of the magic stores here in town. Um, he helped me on numerous projects uh, refine and uh, make my magic uh, for the audience much, much better. Um, but having known him for all these years, I, I did not know his origin story, which is fantastic. And that's how we kicked off our, our chit chat with him. Yeah, Tyler, so great to have you on the program. You have uh, helped me with my magic and uh, been a mentor uh, to me. How did you uh, get involved in magic in the first place? 
Oh, my my origin story is pretty simple. I I think it's best that I give you the stages though, because I think a lot of people got directly to magic through a magic kit. And my journey was a little more tangential because I was watching cartoons on a Saturday morning and my friend came in with a trick that came out of a Cheerios box. And it was one of those kinds of tricks that is all about the setup. And he proceeded to set up set it up in front of me. So of course I saw exactly how it worked before he even did it. So when he did it, it was completely unimpressive. But when Monday rolled around and I was walking around school and I saw a big congregation of people, you know, the thronging mass. And I was like, what is this? And I get to the middle and there's my friend with his tube and two strings getting all this attention. And it occurred to me, hey, I'd like to get a lot of attention. So I told my mother that I thought I might be interested in magic. And she brought a book home from the Virginia Public Library. And it was the Eldon Day Handbook of Magic, a fantastic book. And I still just really thank my lucky stars how all these things came to be. Because the reason there was a magic trick in that box of Cheerios is because of Dan Witkowski. That was a marketing campaign on his part. And the reason that I stayed in magic was because I got the Elden Day Magic Handbook because there are other books in the same library that I absolutely would have quit magic before I even started because they had no pictures and very terse explanations, whereas the handbook had actual photographs and, and very strong magic for a beginner's book. So that was what got me in. I stayed because of books from the library system, the Arrowhead library system, second to none. They would mail me books. I was getting books from the Duluth Public Library, which is 100 miles away from where I was living. And then I hooked into a group of magicians from the Duluth area. But the reason, it's funny, I bypassed Duluth going to the Twin Cities because I started uh, shopping at the magic shop Twin Cities Magic and Costume and Fred Bache told me that there was a group of guys in the Duluth Superior area that I should know about. So lo and behold, I connect into them and uh, they foster me. I might get my first two mentors there, John Bushy and Terry Roses. That's where my mentorship started in. And also there's a local guy named Pete Golden who had a personal library and would loan it to me. You have to understand, I'm just some punk kid from nowhere, Minnesota, who lives 100 miles away from him. And he's like, yeah, take anything you want. Just write it down so I know what you have. And I'd walk away with the entire Tarbell course, Keith Clark cigarette manipulation. <laughs> so quite a, quite a few things. Took a ride with me and came back months later. And uh, that, was, that was the start. So you're into magic. What are you doing with it? Are you out doing shows? Or, or how, how does that guy become teacher mentor guy? Well, uh, again, my my path is pretty straightforward as a magician. I did dabble in the world of the normal people, and it and failed miserably. So luckily, I didn't stay there for very long. I had a friend who contacted me saying, "Can you help me get a job? There's a magic store opening in the Mall of America." And I don't know any of these tricks. They gave me a list of like 10 things. Do you know any of them? And I looked at it and I'm like, I know all of them. And then I asked him, do you care if I go for this job? <laughs> and he said begrudgingly no. So actually he didn't say begrudgingly no. He just acted begrudgingly and said the word no. And so uh, there I was at Old Town Magic, stayed there for three years and developed my skills, ran into another magician, Mike Arazi, who's still on the scene yeah. here. And he, highly influential, because once again, a man with a massive personal library, and not only in the physical sense, but also in the mental sense, he knew everything. I would ask him, you know, who's got the best work on the Jardinellis ring? And he'd be like, oh, so-and-so and such-and-such. -and -such. Just snap, snap, before there was Google, there was Arazi. <laughs> and so that was really helpful. 
And again, just a, a wonderful man loaning me things, telling me where to find, giving me books or, or uh, at the time, VHS tapes to watch and to learn from. So I was at that shop for three years. What the management didn't understand is the only reason I stayed as long as I did was because of Mike. So when they let Mike go, they were letting me go. Basically, at the same time, I gave my notice two weeks later. And within less than a week's time, I had hooked a job with Twin Cities Magic and Costume, the place that I had first started shopping at now. It was the place where I was working. I stayed there for, I think, a year and a half. And as I was there, I had started teaching classes. And since we're into the asides, I'll give you the story. When I was at Old Town Magic, a famous trade show magician, Joel Bauer, came through. And I happened to recognize him on site. He came in and he asked if we had Magic or Genie Magazine. And of course we don't because we're a tourist magic shop. But I said, are you Joel Bauer? And he did fess up to that. And... Two guys came into the shop that I had built a relationship with selling magic. And one of them could hear me saying, oh, this is Joel Bauer, famous magician. You guys should, you know, count your lucky stars that he's here when you're here. And it was Bob Burns and Pat Umphrey. Bob Burns was Pat's bowling instructor, and they'd both gotten started in magic. And, and they asked Joel, well, Bob asked Joel, like, what should I get? Pointing to the whole wall full of magic. Like, what should I get? And, and Joel said, don't get any of that crap. Take lessons from this guy. And he points to me. And I had never thought about giving lessons, but that was, again, one of those planted seeds. And so Bob took him seriously and hit me up for it and said, do you want to start giving classes? And I was like, sure. And so those were my very first students. And when I moved over to Twin Cities Magic and Costume, it became part of the package that I could teach classes there. And so I started doing that and I knew I had found my calling. And so after about a year and a half, I decided I was going to go full time as a magician performing and teaching. When you started teaching, how'd you put together a curriculum for beginning magicians? Well, it's changed over time, but I have always considered myself a close-up magician first who eventually found his way to the stage. And my relationship to the stage is one where I can do a stage show, people will like it. My heart is not fully in it. Like I am surrounded by people that love the stage more than anything else in the world of magic. And I am just not as connected to it, but I understand why they love it and what they get from it. And I know it has a whole lot to do with where you draw your power. And so theater has its own kind of collective power, the way the audience moves as one, the way that you can pause and people will wait for you to start speaking again. And close-up magic is different because if you stop talking, there's a reasonable chance someone will come in and fill the void. And so that's very disruptive. If you're used to a theatrical environment, you're not going to like close-up. But what close-up gives you is this power because people, when they stand right next to you, cannot believe that you can still do it. They have this sense that because you are distant, because you are on a stage, that is what allows you to make things appear and disappear and whatnot. And so once you are in that kind of proximity, they've got nowhere to go. And it hits so much harder that when you go to the stage from a close-up world, you constantly feel like you're failing because it's just not killing them the way you're used to. And I've found my footing for the stage where I, I get enjoyment from a stage performance, but I'd be lying if I said, I love it as much as I do close-up. So my early curriculum was drawn from my background in sleight of hand. And so I drew up what I thought would be the fundamental slights that anybody getting in should know. And then I found what I thought were reasonable representations of those slights within 
an actual routine. So you weren't learning just some disembodied slight. It had some place to live within a larger construct. And one of the first things I found out was that what my understanding of a basic routine was, was well beyond what actually is basic. It amuses me because I remember being on the other side of that. I remember when my mentor, John Bushy said, well, here's a basic cups and balls routine. And then just started telling me it to me, to, telling it to me move by move. Like I was just going to remember it, you know, and it was the, the Vernon three cup routine. There's, there's, I, I still like, what was he thinking when he started? Like, I kind of think he knew that it would be overwhelming, but I know when I started teaching and I'm like, well, here's this routine. And it was a multi-phase bit and I could see people glaze over and not fully absorb it. And I'm like, I'm doing that thing. I'm giving them too much. And so the, the early curriculum that I developed changed fairly rapidly when I realized the speed at which most people are going to absorb stuff. And of course, what throws you off is there's always some wonderkin that shows up and you tell them something and two or three days later, they've got the whole thing down. And you were like, well, see now they did it. So I guess everybody should be like that. And the less it is, people are different. Let's talk about that. In, the, in this book, Eli is trying to teach an actor how to be a magician, at least on screen in the movie that he's working for. Uh, uh, talk about magic students. Is there is there a typical magic student? Can you describe them to me? Well, there is and there isn't because what goes on is there is a fairly typical path. Now that we live in the information age and everyone has this magic box in their pockets that connects them to all information, they tend to get in through the internet and the internet gives them a starting point that isn't necessarily the best place to be yet most of them have that before i see them the internet has seen them and has filled their head full of sometimes some significant nonsense i'm going to answer your question but i think i'll back up and go straight to the heart of if i'm working with an actor that's going to learn the part of a magician that is an entirely different thing than taking just a normal person and teaching them magic. Just to clarify what the difference would be, I think actors have a much stronger grip of motivation and internal monologue. They, they know who they are as they do a thing, what they are trying to portray as a narrative, like a card rising up out of a deck or something is disappearing. And so they will spend not an inordinate, but actually a proper amount of time envisioning this positive narrative that they are selling to the audience. When you are coming in as a magician without actors training, you tend to focus on the negative narrative, which is, I have to hide this. This has to go unseen. No one can notice me doing this. And one of my more current refrains for the last few years has been this idea of focusing on the positive narrative, because if you put a lot of emphasis into what the audience is supposed to see and feel and understand, weaknesses in your technique will disappear more readily than if you work very, very hard at hiding your slights, but have no positive narrative layered over that for the audience to follow. The parallel that I've made is to that of a ventriloquist. The ventriloquist has two sides. One is the technique of hiding your mouth moving as you make the words and also animating the, the figure. But on the positive narrative, we have what the figure is actually saying. When you interact, you're creating another personality. And so if you are good at that, being very good at imbuing life into this, this figure, it will overcome your shortcomings of not moving your lips because it's such a compelling force. 
And I have seen that. I know there are magicians, I won't name names, but their technique is really quite poor on the grand scale of things. And it does not matter because they are so good at emphasizing the positive narrative about how impossible this is going to be and where people are and how it's not their deck of cards or they haven't touched it or whatever it's going to be, that they will own a room far more so than a more skillful, dexterous magician who doesn't understand how to sell those points. And so I think actors are in a much better position to learn magic because they've got their priorities straight. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. What? Is there a common mistake or misconception that magic students have as they're getting into learning? Absolutely. I think the biggest one is that the harder something is to do on a dexterous level, the better it must be. And there is absolutely no connection between these two techniques because from the audience's standpoint, correct technique is invisible technique. It cannot be appreciated. It's kind of like camouflage in a way. Like if you notice the guy standing there in the ghillie suit, then it's not good camouflage because you noticed. And if it's just some dope standing there, but you didn't notice because you were fixated on something on the other side of the road, well, then that was great camouflage because you never noticed that they were there. And so when it comes to misconceptions about magic, I have this theory that I call hedgehog theory. And it's born of the modern age because I have a parable in my head that doesn't actually exist in the world. I heard some parable, my brain twisted into something new and it's more functional for me. So I'm keeping it that way. So (laughs) the fox and the hedgehog are having a conversation about what they do when they're attacked. And the fox is like, oh, well, I'm very clever because I can dig a hole or I can go and I can go up the hill and I can walk through the water and lose my scent and I can do. And the hedgehog's like, I can roll up in a ball. I can roll up in a ball. He's got one thing he can do. And in my version of the story, the the hunters come and they're after both of them. And the, the fox is like, well, what should I do? Should I run up the hill? Should I go in the water? And he gets devoured. But the hedgehog instantly rolls up into a ball and he is safe. Now, I, I search the internet. That story doesn't exist. It, it, there is a fox and a hedgehog. It goes a different direction. But my point is that the paralysis of analysis is prevalent in the world of magic. And there are so many things that exist as a, a technique or a concept that have variations. So you'll discover a given technique and maybe you'll even buy a book about this technique. And within that book, there will be dozens and dozens of ways in which this technique will manifest. And to me, that is the toxin of magic. Not because any of those things are wrong. It's because as a beginner, you should not be exposed to endless variation. Mm. And so you get caught up like the fox and all the options, and you don't know where to go. So hedgehog theory or army of hedgehogs for me is that whenever I come across something that's particularly potent, I say, if I could only use that technique in one routine, not just one time, it might manifest more than once within that routine, but for one purpose, and then it is dead to me. What is the best manifestation for my purposes? Where will it have a home? And now I bring it in exclusively in that way and I I take everything off the table so that now I can focus on presenting an effect with that technique and lean into that and make it strong instead of letting myself get pulled in, a, in all these different directions. And I think that is the problem with a lot of modern magicians is they have the mindset of, I guess I'll just say a hoarder. More information is always better. The more things I own, the better. 
acquisition is in some way improvement. And it's not true. It's a weight on your shoulders. I know people that feel more guilty now because they've spent so much money on magic and they still can't do anything than they did when they started, when at least it made sense that they couldn't do anything. Ah, boy, I, I, I may be one of those people, as it turns out. Uh, so let's can, can we just take where you are, because I think you're sort of right there anyway, and turn it into a more global question. What are magicians doing wrong? you think? Okay. Well, first of all, you should know that as a trainer, my number one thing is to reframe questions in the positive. It's taken from inspiration. Back in 95, the Tommy Wonder books came out and he had an essay called Direction, Not Misdirection. The idea of letting go of the idea of what you want the audience to not notice and just focusing on what you want them to notice. And because of that, they will not notice other things. It is a functional way of understanding your brain. So what are people doing wrong could be flipped into what could people do more of to be better? Mm. And, and again, it's so I'll try to answer both simultaneously. What they could do to be better is to limit what it is they are working on and to see it all the way through. So understanding this big picture at the end. So what will this look like as an actor would do envisioning what this will look like to the audience when the trick goes from start to finish? What should it look like? What should it feel like? What is the tone? Is this supposed to be magnificent? Is this supposed to be offhanded? Is this supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be spooky? Knowing that from the get go before you've even worked on the technique, I want this to feel this way will influence the way you train it. And letting that be the song that you are learning to play note for note all the way through versus dabbling a little bit here, dabbling a little bit there, having bits and pieces of information that are disconnected. So what do magicians do wrong? They let themselves get scattered. How could they be better? Pick a thing and see it through. Now, you can't work on exclusively one thing unless you've got an aberrant brain. Most of us need a little variety. So you find your sweet spot. I'm working on three things or six things, but there's definitely a point of toxicity where you've outgrown your brain's ability to keep up and, and you don't get progress. You, you get dabbling. You're, you do a little here, you do a little there, but you don't get the sense of actually moving forward. So if you have it represented in your head of, and some people do very well with deadlines. So in three months, I will be doing this it will have a presentational tone. I may very well have a script either word for word or blocked out. So I have the essence of what I'll be saying. And I will have the technique down well enough that it should work. And I say should because I am willing to put something out now that has a risk of not working. I, I put it at about the 80% mark. And I've heard others that have made a similar assessment. I used to be a perfectionist. I'm like, I cannot afford for this to go wrong. So I'll work on it, work on it, work on it. And I've heard others give advice like this, that don't work on it till you get it right, work on it till it can't go wrong. And that's great advice for people that aren't human, because most people want to go out and do this trick. Think about where your energy is as a magician, you just want to go and show it to somebody. So having a sense of getting it to a point where you've ironed out most of the major kinks, but you're willing to take a little bit of risk which is always easier if you have multiple audiences, because if it all hangs on, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to show it to the guy at work and he's either going to work or not. And now I'm done. I get to perform this trick one time. Wow. That's kind of a tough way to, to learn the art. 
as a teacher, how did you learn to use the more positive approach? How did that? It's a few different things that kind of layered over each other. A hypnotist told me once that you can't put negative ideas into someone's head. You can't say you don't want to smoke. He says the brain will latch on to the active parts of the thing and you and smoke. So you end up with thinking about smoking. But if you said you want to be healthy, well, smoking is not considered to be a healthy activity. Therefore, it would be cut away. And so that was the start. I heard that back in the early 90s or no, you know what? Now that I think about it, it was the later 90s. And uh, so it was the Tommy Wonder essay and it was the hypnosis. And then it was just listening to people tell me about themselves and how almost all of them start with this apology about how they should be better, how they should practice more, all, all the guilt, massive amounts of guilt. And so when you ask what do magicians do wrong, they hold themselves accountable to unrealistic standards. Yeah. Understanding who you are and what you should be capable of in a given amount of time is really helpful because it's like you go on YouTube and you see someone who's doing Olympic level stuff and you're like, yeah, that should be me. No, it shouldn't. There's, there's no reason you should think you should be in those shoes because the amount of training and effort and sometimes just the fact that this is some prodigy, you know, so with skill well beyond the average and you're thinking that's the marker, I should be able to do this technique like that. This one with millions of hits that everybody says, wow, this is the best I've ever seen it. I should be able to make it look like that. No. When I got into magic, most information was in printed form and it was just starting to become accessible on VHS. So I was lucky to get to see something done and even luckier if they would explain how it was done. Most of the time you were deciphering it from the printed page. And now because there's so much instantly accessible, you get a community and the community surrounds a hard technique and makes it sound like this is the way to go. But pardon the term, but it's incestuous. It's magicians talking to other magicians about the best parts of magic. And it doesn't involve lay people, the, the people who are ultimately going to be seeing and experiencing it. So Tommy Wonder, who's my constant reference, was the son of a watchmaker and made watches himself. And he, himself, and he talked about mechanisms in this way. If I made a secret box that would do things and I filled it full of gears and cogs, regular people looking inside would be very impressed with what they saw. But I knew the box that I needed was this one with no moving parts that did the same job because that will never break. Every time you add a part to something, it is one more thing to go wrong. So his acknowledgement was for the uninformed, the one that is complicated with the gears and the cogs and all of that, that's what they'd be drawn to. But he knew on a functional standpoint, the simpler one was the one that would withstand a lifetime's worth of abuse and always be reliable. And that is what separates the functional magician mind from the one that exists within a magic community of pleasing other magicians and what they think is impressive technique and what they think is a good trick. And that, if there's any one thing I would want to impress upon people from the very get-go is that you have to trust another magician's opinion. You, you have to, t you take it with a grain of salt because you need to know where they're coming from in their assessment before you can judge whether it's useful to you. Yep. <laughs> what, what, what are you excited about uh, magically today? I mean, oh. uh, of the things that are happening in, in uh, this world, uh, wh where, where do you find passion? So I am not, a negative person. I am constantly pleased with what's going on in magic. We have all sorts of things happening. First of all, 
the most obvious of them is by the sharing of information. When I was young and in magic, someone would invent a trick and then a year or two or three later, someone would have a variation of that and a year or two or three later, maybe another variation. And now it happens in a matter of weeks. Someone comes out with a version, some kid on the other side of the world gets it and say, why don't you do it like this? And they're like, yeah, why don't I do it like that? That's great. Bing, bang, boom. These things just rocket forward in terms of their innovation. You have people who are inspired to do better. It's it's very much the history. Like I think, again, when I was young, my first purchases for magic apparatus would come from comic books. They had those pages with buy the six foot balloon and x-ray glasses and magic tricks were there, the Johnson Smith catalog. And one of the things that would show up in the in the comic books is Charles Atlas, bodybuilder, you know, don't be a wimp, get big muscles. And somebody submitted a picture of Charles Atlas, unaccredited to who it was, into one of the bodybuilder forms. And the bodybuilders are like, who's this shrimp? You know, that's how much the, the norms have changed, that what used to be considered a massive body that would set you apart is now not even enough to get you entry. Same thing's true for the Olympics. The things that used to win medals now wouldn't even get you into the competition. So magic is going through its own renaissance in that fashion. And Sturgeon's Law is, what, 80% of everything is <laughs> Whatever the exact percentage is, you can look it up on Wikipedia. Like that's That's the quote. So that means if there's millions of people doing it, there's that many more that are doing it poorly. I, I just accept that. So when it comes to magicians, you really have to have this understanding of expectations and what is realistic for you and how you should approach the, the problem of learning things or the, the way in which you absorb information. As long as you keep it straight, what is realistic, that, that's it. Just knowing yourself, such a big part of the equation. I know you don't trade in negativity. Do you see anything that you would dislike to never see again? So what I love about this is the idea of what should go away. Solid, solid idea. We can reframe it as how do we be better? And that's all it boils down to is here's a thing that has existed. And when you're better, it doesn't. So David Kay had a column in Genie Magazine called Turn It Around. It was, first of all, it's a funny pun because a big part of magic is getting kids to think there's something on the backside of a prop and then they say, turn it around and you turn it one way and you turn it another way, but never the way they want you to. But the column is about flipping the prerogative. So instead of it being something where the performer gets it right and their helper gets it wrong, which was standard, he turned it around. He made it so the performer is always getting it wrong and the helper is always getting it right. And for as obvious as that might sound, as a construct, you're a children's entertainer, so let's make it so the adult is constantly failing. That was mind-blowing as a concept to, to take away making the kid look incompetent. And when you think about it, kids typically don't have all the information. They're always looking to adults for how to do a thing. So it's normal for them not to be able to do the thing that the adult can do. So to turn that around, to play the part of the clown, to have them so easily be able to get a bottle to be right side up in a tube, but you to constantly fail no matter how hard you try, that was a mind-blowing concept. Yet there are still those who would resist it. No, I'm the magician. I should have the power and they should be unable to duplicate me. Okay. I mean, if that's the way it has to be, but the insight that David Kay had, uh, Silly Billy, by the way, stage name, was profound in its simplicity. And I think there is a lot of vestigial magic, whether it be in bits of business or lines, that they're just carryovers from a bygone era that maybe they had their place or maybe they were always offensive and at the time nobody said anything. But people are saying things now. And 
there is something that happens in magic where something works really well, whether it's a, a trick with vinyl records and then records go away. But there's some magician out there that loves the trick so much that they will tell a story about how their grandfather gave them these records in a will and now I've got them. And just anything you can do to validate something that that's, society has moved past that you have to make excuses for just so they recognize it. Now, luckily we've got DJs that scratch records and so they've had their resurgence, but you know, there, there's, there are things that have gone away so far that people don't recognize a slide rule. Like what is that magic thing? Like being able to let go of something. If you're an early magician coming in, you don't have that same kind of a bit, but if you've been in magic for years, you'll have something near and dear to your heart and it might be time to kill your darlings because what you find, and this is that real jump and the net will appear kind of mindset, is magic is eternal and the props that you manifested through can change. That's a surface level change. We're the heart of the ocean. Everything's calm down there. You can have all the ruckus on top that you want down underneath, fine and calm. So the principles of magic do not change, but the way in which they manifest should be done through things that people can recognize. At least generally speaking, that's a smarter way to go. So you don't have to waste theatrical time explaining why you have this thing that otherwise wouldn't be there. And I'm looking at you coin magicians because <laughs> a lot of these coins are super old when I got into magic and yet there they are. And so many stories are like, my grandfather gave me these, or I don't know, they're made from real silver so they protect me from werewolves. You can have something, but generally people are suspicious and i will put it this way if somebody came in and like i'm an escape artist and i'm going to escape from something here's a pair of handcuffs that i've brought with me but i guarantee you they're genuine police handcuffs please examine them i would look them over and when they got of them i would still be unimpressed because i don't know what i'm looking for so if you are a magician and you think well i tell them a story about what this is and i let them look at it and therefore they're convinced it's normal i just don't think that's true I think that people are smart and suspicious and you need to go, you need to be better when it comes to managing suspicion. So as they go, look, I know those coins are real because they came out of my pocket or whatever. And yes, you can still do the thing and yes, it will still play, but always know that just like a car mechanic says, you're losing compression. You're not getting all the power out of this machine that you have. Everything that you have trained is great, but you are losing power through this one spot because people are suspicious of your coins or your deck of cards or your vinyl records or whatever it is. And one of the ways you can mitigate some of that is using something that is currently culturally appropriate because it raises no eyebrows. That was just a jam-packed, I don't know how many minutes it was, just jam-packed with really cool, interesting stuff. There's so many things I want to talk about uh, based on what Tyler said, but the one that jumps to mind immediately is before there was Google, there was Michael Arazi. And that's true. Having known Mike uh, for years and been in a club with Mike, he is a font of information. It's all jammed in there somehow, and he's able to access it quickly when you need it. He's great. He is, he's a very, he's a very quiet man. But then when you put in your quarter and ask your question, uh, you, you ask Alexander and he is there. I've been amazed at the the stuff he's come up with. And I just thought it was great that, that Tyler <laughs> holds him in that esteem as do we. Yeah. And it, you know, the thing that I take away from Tyler's conversation with us, the big thing for me is I tend to accumulate 
things uh, and methods and versions. And, uh, you know, how about this? Oh, I could add this. I could twist this here. Da, 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 da. The idea that being exposed to endless variation really paralyzes you in yeah. some way uh, yeah. is, is fascinating to me. That is so smart and is so applicable to so many things besides magic. So many art forms in uh, run across that in screenwriting. I've run across that in um, movie making and in book writing. Just the idea that I just need to accumulate all this stuff. We'll talk more next episode with our friend Suzanne about hoarding and the plus side and the minus side of what she calls magic hoarding, because there is there is a plus side to it. There is a, a reason why you might want to do that if that's if that's the room you want to live in in the house of magic. Um, nothing wrong with it, but uh, as Tyler sort of pointed it out, and as Suzanne will say in uh, more detail uh, it's not the fastest way to get good at being a working magician but it is it, it's an okay thing to do and and i'm largely defending myself here uh, it's, an, <laughs> it's an okay thing to do if you, you like i don't ever intend on uh being a magician i i don't mind doing a show that has magic and uh using magic within the confines of the show but i'm probably never going to sit down and try to put together a full evening show. However, I really like magic and I like, I like hoarding it, not hoarding. That's not the word I want. I like collecting it. Yeah. And that's a fine thing to do. I think it's an okay thing to do to collect magic, to study magic, to read about magic with no intention of ever performing it. it uh, I think that's an okay thing. It's a totally okay thing. And I believe that even Eugene told you that early on, that it was yeah, okay to absolutely. do that. But it's just not the most efficient way to get good if you want to become a professional. Uh, Tyler also mentioned, believe it or not, uh, a future guest of this program, a magician named Dan Witowski, who's um, a local guy, made good. Um, and we're going to get a chance to talk to him. But uh, worlds collide, huh? Yeah, it was really funny that he brought him up. Dan is one of the guys that we we sort of banked uh, some interviews when uh, you had an opening in your schedule and we got some people recorded and Dan was one that uh, was so much fun to talk to and, and he will pop up sooner than than later and you'll enjoy um, how he probably touched your life in ways you didn't know when you were a kid. Yeah, that's what's going great... on there with your with your microphone. We, had, you... a, we had a little dog uh, incident here. Uh, we're all fine here now. How are you? <laughs> Did the dog unplug the microphone or? Uh, he just kind of got caught in the cord, <laughs> pulled it off the table. Well, that's we okay. Three dogs here, John. Three I've of got, them. I've got two, but they're in the other room. So that's okay. Anyway, thanks, Tyler, for chatting with us. I've got some links uh, in the show notes to Tyler's website. Uh, also a video of him doing a quick bill change demonstration that I thought was pretty cool. And a promo for his work as a teacher. Also in our show notes, I should mention back in episode 213, if you're doing the math, that was probably four episodes ago, uh, we were talking about chapter 13 of The Bullet Catch. And in that chapter, there was mention made of Eli performing Dr. Daly's last card trick. Uh, as I mentioned then, and I'll mention again now, the idea to use that particular trick for Eli at that point in his story came to me from uh, our mutual friend, Steve Carlson who I approached and said, here's what's going on. Eli's been handed a really crummy deck of cards. Someone is basically threatening his life to do a trick. What do you do in that situation? And without even hesitating, Steve said, I would do Dr. Daly's last card trick. So after we mentioned that, a uh, request popped up on our YouTube page because people actually do look at our YouTube page. Thank you for doing okay. that. Yeah. There's all sorts of weird stuff on there. And they said, hey, can Steve do that trick for us? Well, 
yes, he can because he just lives up the street from me and he had a garage sale last weekend. And I ran into him and said, uh, do you want to do this trick? And he said, you know what? We actually walked by the day before they were setting up. He said, I'm going to be doing magic all day long tomorrow. So I will add that to my repertoire. Come by when we've got some people here and I'll do it for you. And so that video of Steve doing his version of that classic card trick is the, there's a link in the show notes. You can just find it on our behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast, YouTube channel. It's, I will say it is his own variation on it and it is a mind bender. It is a great trick for audiences, lay audiences. But uh, magicians out there, your head might explode. Did you get a chance to see it? I did. I saw it. I had no idea of the uh, 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 that, that you were behind it. I thought this was just stuff that Steve had and you just tapped it. So not knowing anything, I'm even more delighted by that video, knowing you shot it uh, at a garage sale. Which <laughs> There are more than uh, a few benefits to living uh, uh, down the street from a professional magician. And a good one like Steve. Yeah. So that was uh, a request that came from chapter uh, 13. And uh, we're now going to be reading chapter 17. Why don't you kick us up? Could you do that? Yeah, I'll get us caught up as best I can. Uh, in chapter 16, there was some work planning what the bullet catch was going to be. Uh, we learned about the movie Francis the Talking Mule, which will come up as a uh, clue later on. We had a quick encounter with uh, Clive Albans, who's been banned from the movie set because of the article he wrote. And then we met with uh, insurance man Roger Edison, which brings us right into chapter 17. <laughs> The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 17. Sorry I'm late, I said. I just spent 15 minutes knocking at what I thought was the front door to your house. Turns out it was your garage. I gave a half laugh, and Sylvia Washburn gave me a sour look. I'd called her right after leaving Roger's office, and although she was by no means enthusiastic, she said it would be permissible to stop by and talk to her for a moment, if I made it quick. Her tone struck me as odd. She sounded annoyed, gruff, impatient. What she didn't sound like was a grieving widow. The house, okay, let's call it a mansion, sat on a hill high above the lake and wasn't visible from the curvy road I'd used to get there. That may have explained my mistake with the garage, but trust me, the garage looked amazing and the mansion even more so. I have people coming in 30 minutes, so we'll have to make this quick, she said, turning and walking into the house, not waiting to see if I would follow. She was tall and thin and blonde and quaffed within an inch of her life. Every hair was lacquered into place. Her lipstick looked like it had been applied surgically, and her blood-red nails could have been painted with actual blood. Not since my fourth-grade teacher's sister Naomi had threatened me with a ruler had I met a more frightening woman. Our new maid of two weeks, Carmelita, quit suddenly yesterday, and I could strangle her, she said over her shoulder, as she made a sharp left out of the grand foyer through which we were trekking. I followed her, made the turn, and found myself in a mammoth dining room, with a table set for at least sixteen with room to spare. A chandelier worthy of the Phantom of the Opera hung above the center of the table, around which two harried Hispanic women were furiously putting the final touches on the place settings. A quick count of the forks and spoons suggested at least a seven-course meal was planned. 
For what it was worth, my dinner plans were likely to consist of eating a bowl of Cheerios over my kitchen sink. Everyone defines hot cuisine in their own way, I guess. Sylvia Washburn barked some words in Spanish to the two women. My high school Spanish was once again tested. She spoke with such speed and venom, all I really picked up were the words for faster and idiots. It was surprising Carmelita had lasted as long as she had. Twenty-eight minutes, Mr. Marks, Sylvia said as she made imperceptible adjustments to the women's work. She turned and gave me a glare that made me actually squint. What did you want to talk to me about? For a moment, my mind went blank, and I would have been hard-pressed to provide my own name and address. Then, mercifully, conscious thought returned. Well, first, my condolences on your loss, I said. She flicked something invisible off her sleeve. Thank you she said with no warmth. Once again, Howard demonstrated his terrible timing. We had this dinner planned for weeks. He knew that. Were you married long? I ventured. Too long by half, but I blame myself as much as Howard for that. Is that all you wanted, Mr. Marks? To extend condolences? Because frankly, that could have been handled over the phone. She made a move that suggested the front door was beckoning, but I held my ground. I've worked in front of my share of tough audiences and have developed skills for dealing with the drunk and belligerent. This may have been my greatest test yet. Actually, I was trying to get more information about Howard and his business. He and I chatted before his um, accident, but I never got a really clear picture of how he made what was clearly a good living. I made an ineffectual gesture toward the surroundings, looking very much like someone selling something badly on late-night cable. Yes, Howard was a good provider. I will say that about him, she said. Of course, I always told him if he would work 10% harder, I would be 20% happier, but it was like talking to a wall with him. What exactly was the nature of his business, I pressed. She gave the Deephaven version of a shrug, exerting the least possible amount of energy to complete the action. International shipping of some kind. Buying. Selling. He was on the phone most of the time, I can tell you that. Do you have any more specifics? She could not have looked more bored. Mr. Marks, our relationship was not unlike that of Jackie and President Kennedy. When he came home at the end of the day, I made a point of never discussing his business. Took me a moment to realize she was comparing herself to the most famous widow of the past century without a touch of irony. I sensed I had reached the end of our conversational rope. I see, I said. Well, thank you for your time, Mrs. Washburn. No trouble at all, Mr. Marks, she replied curtly, although I sensed that it had been a great deal of trouble for her, thank you very much. She marched back toward the front door, and I followed. We walked quickly back through the foyer, her heels making a steady click, click, click. She held the front door open and turned a cold smile on me. Enjoy your evening. I stepped forward, and a final thought occurred to me. One last thing, I said, nearly slipping into a Peter Falk impression. I was wondering, did you know Dylan LaSalle? There's a scene in the old movie, The House of Wax, where in the midst of a fire... The villain's wax face actually cracks from the heat. That isn't literally what happened to Sylvia Washburn's face, but it looked to be the emotional equivalent. She looked at me, and her expressionless face 
was suddenly filled with several waves of emotions. Then she regained control, and once again, all emotion disappeared from her visage. I was familiar with very few of Howard's business associates, but Mr. LaSalle and I did meet on a handful of occasions, she said, choosing each word precisely. I was very sorry to hear of his passing. You've reminded me I really must send a card to his wife. It's Patricia, right? Trish, yes, I said. We stood for a moment in silence. I was thinking she had something to add, but apparently she didn't share that sentiment. Thank you again, Mr. Marks. I really must prepare the house for my guests. The door shut with a solid finality. I walked down the lengthy, twisty driveway to my car and sat in it for a long while. I thought about the garage that was nicer than most people's homes. I thought about Howard Washburn and how he so desperately wanted to be liked. I thought about how my only real memory of Howard was going to be of him seated at his desk with a bullet in his brain. I thought about how easy it was for some people to tip. And I thought about the dinner party that was about to start without him, and about the wife who would miss her last maid more than her sad late husband. It was at that point I shook myself out of my reverie, started the car, and headed home. I was damned if they were going to catch me crying in Deephaven. Mac the Knife was playing on the jukebox when I walked into Adrian's, and it was the perfect antidote to my encounter with Sylvia Washburn. As expected, Harry was seated in the back. It was likely he who paid a quarter to spin his favorite Bobby Darren song. He's been known to invest as much as $3 in one sitting. It delights him, but the repeated playing tends to drive the other patrons crazy. I expected to see a gaggle of mystics at the back table, but this evening only Max had joined Harry for a beer. As I approached, I could tell they were in the midst of their lifelong argument. They say most marriages are built on the same argument repeated ad infinitum. The same was true of Harry and Max. Their argument revolves around what magicians have dubbed the too-perfect theory. In a nutshell, it argues that the more perfect a trick appears, the more likely the audience will be able to figure out the method. So like every piece of great art, a trick needs a slight flaw in its design to draw the eye away from the method. For example, Max was saying as I approached their table, if I do a trick with my cell phone, that's too perfect. It's a piece of technology, and the audience is going to be thinking, well, there must be an app for it. But, he continued, holding up a hand to stop Harry from making a comment he didn't even look like he was going to make, if I do a trick with your cell phone, good luck, I said as I sat down to join them. It's never on. Buster, save me from this conversation, Harry said with mock terror. Put me out of my misery. No way, old man. I'd wager that you were the one who poured the kerosene on the ember this time, and it's your fault he's all riled up. Harry grunted a response, and the two continued their belly aching while I stepped to the bar to order a beer. I didn't want them to realize it, but I actually enjoyed these arguments, and over the years, I'd learned a lot about the subtleties of magic from listening to them banter back and forth. When I returned, they had settled into a watchful silence. 
I sipped my beer as each of them looked around the bar and at the pretzels on the table, and at me, but never at each other. Mac the knife ended on the jukebox, and then a second or so later it started up again. I will say this one last thing on the subject, Max interjected suddenly, and I could see Harry's shoulders tense up. And then I will call it a night. Please do that, Harry said. The final word comes not from me, but from Darwin Ortiz, who I think we can all agree knows from good magic. Harry grunted an assent. Max looked to me and I nodded enthusiastically. Darwin Ortiz was the real deal. Darwin said, if you can get people to ask the wrong question, you'll guarantee they never come up with the right answer. And that, my friend, is all I need to say about the two perfect theory. Thank heavens, Harry said. Now I will take my leave of you fine gentlemen. Max looked at his watch. Given the way the stoplights are timed in this city, I should make it home in an hour. I could walk it in twenty minutes, but with the Fakakta stoplights, the drive will take me an hour. He got up, tipped a non-existent hat at us, and ambled out the door. You guys never get tired of arguing about that, do you? Harry smirked at me. To tell you the truth, Buster, I'm entirely on his side. But where's the fun in that? He chuckled and sipped his beer. I took a handful of pretzels from the bowl on the table, and we both sat there listening to Mr. Darren do the definitive version of Mac the Knife. For a brief second, I thought of the dinner party going on right now in Deep Haven, and then put it out of my mind completely, sat back, and enjoyed the rest of my evening with Harry. I just finished breakfast, Cheerios over the sink, when the phone rang with the default tone. I've got a different ringtone for just about everyone I know. For my ex-wife, Deirdre, I had gone through lots of options. Finally, settling on the stones, it's all over now. Megan was originally assigned it had to be you, but right after she announced we were on a break, I changed it to Heartbreak Hotel. She's never called, so it's never been tested since the day I said it. For other magician friends, I've used a variety of songs over the years. Do You Believe in Magic, Magic Bus, Magic Mystery Tour, Magic Carpet Ride, and Strange Magic. Harry, of course, got Mac the Knife. So when my phone rings, and it's the default ringtone, Hello from Book of Mormon, I know it's either someone trying to sell me something, or someone I don't know well enough to have taken the time to assign a ringtone. It took me several seconds to find the phone because it had slipped onto the floor next to my bed and then under my bed when my foot hit it. Consequently, I was a tad breathless when I answered. Oh, Eli, are you okay? I'm sorry to bother you. Oh, it's Trish, by the way. I'm fine, I said, sitting on the edge of my bed, just playing a quick game of floor hockey with the phone. Look, I'm sorry to bother you, she repeated. It's no bother, I said quickly. Although her voice still had a quaver to it, she didn't sound as weepy as the last time we had spoken. I just got a call from the police, and it sort of unnerved me, she said, and I was wondering if I could ask a favor of you. Sure, no problem, name it, I said, sounding way too agreeable. They say they want me to come downtown so they can take an impression of my fingerprints or something. Oh, and they also need me to give a DNA sample, she added. They said it's routine 
It's just so they can have the information on file as they continue to investigate Dylan's death. I think that's very common with a spouse in these situations, I said, having no idea what I was talking about. Well, even so, it got me spooked, and I was wondering if you have time this morning to come with me, you know, for moral support. I was trying to temper my eagerness, so I didn't answer immediately, which she then read as hesitation on my part. Of course, I know this is short notice, she continued, but I cut her off. No problem, Trish. I'm wide open all day. Do you want me to come get you and we can ride downtown together? Oh, Eli, that would be great. Just great. Let me give you my address. Took me a while to find a scrap of paper and even longer to find a working pen, but I finally got my act together and told her I'd see her in 30 minutes. I realized as I craned my neck and stared up at the condo tower that I look at tall buildings entirely different than I used to. Before the panic attacks, the condo tower on the northwest shore of Lake Calhoun would have produced no other emotion in me than the envious feeling that I would never make enough money, even if I lived to be a hundred, to afford to live there. That thought was still in my head, but the primary emotion I was feeling as I walked up to the lobby door was a deep-seated hope Trish lived on the second floor, or better yet, on a rollaway in the lobby. No such luck. The directory put the LaSalle's on the 29th floor. I rang the bell, and a moment later the buzzer buzzed and I stepped into the building. The elevator greeted me with a ding as I approached it, and before I knew it, I was deposited on the 29th floor. I'm sorry, I'm just about ready to go, Trish said as she opened the door and then moved away, disappearing around a corner as I stepped into the apartment. I didn't know what I expected, but I certainly didn't expect this. The place looked like a designer showroom, or like one of those celebrity homes in a magazine where everything looks perfect and completely unlived in. It was an open floor plan where the living room flowed right into the dining area, which flowed right into the stainless steel kitchen. A hall around the corner led to what I assumed were bedrooms and bathrooms, Floor-to-ceiling windows lined two of the three walls. The third wall consisted of French doors that opened out onto a large balcony. I saw that and inched several steps backward toward the safety of the front door. I felt a bead of sweat beginning to form on my temple as I worked on Dr. Baki's breathing exercises. "'Can I get you anything?' Trish asked as she came back into the room. "'Coffee? Espresso?' Ovaltine, I added hoarsely, completing the joke from young Frankenstein, but this was, of course, lost on her. Oh, dear, I don't think I have any of that, she said slowly, her eyes scanning the kitchen cabinets. No, I'm just kidding, I said quickly. Do you want to go? I cocked my head toward the hall and the elevator beyond. Oh, I suppose we should get it over with, she sighed. I stepped into the hall, and she followed. I pulled the door shut and started toward the elevator, but Trish doubled back toward her front door. She gave the door a hard yank until she heard a click. You have to yank it, she said. It sticks. We then headed down the hall back to the elevators. What are you now? Her chauffeur? She wanted a ride. I gave her a ride. You know me. I'm a nice guy. Deirdre snorted a short laugh and then took a sip from her cup. The coffee looked bad. I imagine it tasted worse. 
Yes, Eli, you are that. And you know what they say about nice guys. I ignored her comment and turned my attention across the squad room. A policewoman was taking Trisha's fingerprints, carefully rolling each fingertip across a computer tablet, checking the results on a video screen in front of her. It was a slow and deliberate process. How's the case coming? I asked, deftly switching the subject. Slowly, she said, flipping open a thick file folder on the counter in front of us. She paged through sheet after sheet of paper. Turns out the gun that shot Dylan LaSalle was the same one that killed Howard Washburn. So there's that. Is that good? She looked up at me. It's not good or bad, it just is. She continued looking through the file. How's your thing? Excuse me? Since the divorce was finalized, I think my thing is no longer within your purview. She rolled her eyes at me. Your suicidal scared of heights thing. Oh, that thing. About the same. I did some online research on it. What did you learn? Turns out there are lots of other people with the same condition. Is that good? I gave her my best penetrating look. It's not good or bad. It just is. She turned over another report in the folder revealing a crime scene photo. The moment I saw it, I made an involuntary sound like a heavily suppressed yelp. Deirdre glanced over at me and then realized the cause of my reaction. She pulled the photo out and placed it on the counter in front of me. It was clearly from Dylan LaSalle's crime scene. Yeah, this one's a real mess. She pointed at the photo as she continued. First, they shot him in the heart, killing him just about instantly. Then, a shot to the head, just to be sure. It was a grisly scene, even in black and white, with Dylan's body splayed across the running path, his face and chest a mass of torn flesh and blood. Is there a particular reason you're showing this to me, I asked, turning the photo over. She turned it back, right side up. Yes, to remind you of what we're dealing with here. Your high school sweetheart is connected to two unsolved crimes, a mugging that doesn't look like a mugging and a suicide that doesn't look like a suicide. So she's a suspect? A person of interest, she replied. For now, at least. Have you gotten any more information about Howard Washburn's business and his connection to Dylan? Only that he made a lot more money than his two-bit office would suggest. Money, I suspect, he laundered heavily. With Dylan LaSalle's help. That's what we think. LaSalle was likely carrying drugs or some other contraband in and out of the country for Washburn and possibly others. And we think, recently, Mr. LaSalle recognized the end was in sight. And that's why he was looking to strike a deal and maybe testify? That's a theory. A talking mule, I said quietly. What? Dylan was a talking mule. Deirdre considered this and nodded. Essentially. I looked back across the squad room. The policewoman was just finishing swabbing the inside of Trisha's cheek. She took the damp swab and placed it into an evidence tube, sealed it, and pasted a typed label across the front. She nodded at Trish, who picked up her purse and crossed the room to us. 
Is that all you needed? Deirdre glanced up at her, quickly slipping the crime scene photo under one of the reports near the top of the folder. Yes, thank you for coming in, she said as she began walking her toward the door. I followed, three steps behind. I know it's a hassle, Deirdre continued, but having your fingerprints and DNA on file really helps in the elimination process. For example, some hairs were found on your husband's body, and odds are they're yours, but if they're not, then that becomes a good lead. Well, if you need anything else, by all means, let me know. And of course, if you learn anything, you'll be one of the first, Deirdre said. Now I'll release you into your driver's custody. The joke, such as it was, took a moment to settle, and then Trish gave it as polite a laugh as it deserved. I held the door for her and she went through it. I was about to follow when homicide detective Fred Hutton made his way through the door. I held it for him, gave a nod to Deirdre, and followed Trish to the elevator. The two of them quickly fell into a hushed conversation. Well, at least it didn't take long, I said as I got to the bank of elevators. She had already pressed the down button. If you have no other plans, maybe we could stop and have lunch on the way back to your place, I suggested. Sure, Trish said as the elevator door slid open. Or I could make you a chicken salad sandwich. She stepped into the elevator. The thought of trying to hold any food down while seated in that kitchen made me stop for a moment, halfway in and halfway out of the elevator car. I pictured being surrounded on two sides by floor-to-ceiling windows and on one side by French doors that led out to a 29-story drop. I knew that was well beyond my current therapy goals. I stepped into the elevator. Let's stop at a restaurant, I suggested. Decided being forceful here would be better than lying in a fetal position on her kitchen floor. Sure, whatever, Trish said as the door began to slide shut. A hand reached in at the last second and stopped the door in its tracks. After a moment, it slid open again, revealing homicide detective Fred Hutton. Deirdre stood alongside him. Mrs. LaSalle, Eli, would you mind coming back into the office for a moment? Deirdre said in a flat tone. The one I knew always meant trouble. Is there a problem? Trish asked. You could say that. And that is chapter 17. I will say for fans of the book and the movie version of The Long Goodbye, the scene with Sylvia Washburn, uh, that scene is probably the biggest nod to The Long Goodbye. I, uh, I have no frame of reference for that. Well, you should watch it. Long Goodbye, uh, uh, it's one of the best books in the Chandler series. And uh, Robert Altman did a, a really interesting take on it, updating the, the character of Philip Marlowe. Well, really not updating the character. It was takes place in the 70s when it was shot. But Marlowe is still pretty much a guy from the 40s. And he's, a, he's really uh, out of time and out of space with the uh, 70s Los Angeles around him. So it's a great look at 70s Los Angeles. It's a pretty good adaptation, not strictly faithful, of the book. Uh, it has a fantastic performance by Mark Rydell as a gangster, a very early screen appearance of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as a bodyguard, <laughs> and also has a, a running gag in it in which Elliot Gould, uh, in virtually every scene, lights a match to light his cigarette off of any object nearby. At one point, it's a glass window. Another point, he reaches down into the sand and lights it. And then, of course, most memorable for a fantastic performance by Sterling Hayden 
as Roger Wade. Uh, well worth seeking out the long goodbye. Maybe you could put some sort of, uh, I don't know. A link? Link in, I don't want to call it a link because I don't know what I'm asking. No, I, I could. Any kind of copyright trouble. Well, I but... can't put a link to the whole movie, but I will put a link, uh, if I remember, to the uh, to the trailer. It's a it's a really interesting version of of that book and and captures a lot of Chandler in in a, a way that I think he would have appreciated. It also is, uh, I believe, the last screenplay by screenwriter Lee Brackett, uh, who died uh, before they shot it. Uh, Lee Brackett, I believe, worked on The Big Sleep. Uh, she did a lot of screenplays in the 40s and 50s and and, and also did a first draft of uh, The Empire Strikes Back. You're kidding me. I am not kidding. She shares screen credit with Lawrence Kasdan. a separate podcast where I can just talk to you about stuff like that because although this didn't really fit as, you know, I know. Uh, you know a magic podcast, you are uh, the Mycorrhizae of film. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> That is high praise indeed. High praise indeed. Anyway, we're going to continue with this theme of building a better magician in our next episode, and we're going to keep it local still with our good friend uh, and returning guest, Suzanne the Magician. Oh, Suzanne is great. I think when last she joined us, it was to talk about uh, Eugene Berger, wasn't it? It was, yes. Well, this time around, she's going to be talking about uh, learning magic, how she learned to be a magician from Al Schneider, the great Al Schneider. And then how Eugene Berger, our pal, encouraged her to become a teacher in her own right. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And as uh, we both learned in talking to her, because you've known her much longer than I have, but I've known Suzanne for a dozen years, there's stuff that we heard in in our chat that we'd never heard before. Yeah, so it's- and I've known her a long time. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for this show. Check out those show notes of uh, videos of Tyler in action and see if I remember to put in a link to something having to do with the long goodbye. Yeah. That'll be a little memory test for John. And and then also that video of Steve Carlson performing his variation on uh, Dr. Daly's last card trick. And while you're on the internet, hey, go ahead and uh, rate and review us. Uh, it's a huge help when you do. And you know what else? Subscribe if you haven't already. If you're just new, uh, right now, and this is the first one you've heard. Gosh, there's a bunch of great stuff behind you and more stuff out in front of you, and you'd hate to miss a single episode. Anyway, that's all for now. We will see you next time with Suzanne. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.